0: Thank you for waiting. We're now boarding all passengers on No Blackout Dates Airlines. All aboard No Blackout Dates to... Wait,
1: where the hell are we going? No Blackout Dates, zero Blackout Dates. Good to see you,
2: good to see you. How you doing? Nothing, nothing really and truly all day long like 7-Eleven.
0: When I'm at a strip club, I always feel like I am the problem.
1: That same person is paying 500 bucks for an S&M experience in the red light district.
2: Officially, they say uh, sex work is not normal, but who decides what's normal?
1: Happy Tuesday, everyone. You're listening to No Blackout Dates. I'm Evan. I'm Tim. And you picked a good week to tune in because today's episode is one that I've been wanting to record for quite a while. Mary is an escort working in Amsterdam. She grew up in the city, which is famous for its red light district and in which sex work is just a profession like any other. Uh, After working as a nurse for several years, she decided to become a sex worker herself, primarily working with people with disabilities that make it difficult for them to find intimacy in a more traditional manner. She will completely change, how you view sex workers, prostitution, escorts, dives deep into the red light district, and what she thinks the future of sex work looks like in Amsterdam.
0: That's right. This is probably the most intimate interview we've had from from a lot of different angles. Mary touches on pretty much everything you could ever want to know about sex work, about both sides of, uh, of the aisle on it. And it's something that I think so many people want to ask about and rarely ever get the opportunity to do so. So that is, to me, what stood out the most about this conversation, What is just eye-opening.
1: Yeah, I mean, and some might not believe this about me, but I have no experience in this field myself whatsoever. Um, But I I was never never bought into the stigma around prostitution. It's kind of a similar theme to what I've talked about before on the show regarding uh, food and travel advice, and now regarding sex work. I mean... Just live and let live, man. If someone is voluntarily choosing to have sex for money and does so in a way that affords them financial gain, enjoyments, and they're not being mistreated, have sex for money. Great. If it's not your thing, don't hire a prostitute or an escort. Seems pretty simple,
0: right? And you know, you can compare, you know, a lot of today's conversation with, you know, I grew up listening to a punk band called No Effects, whose singer Fat Mike is very much uh, a forward voice in American culture uh, around sexual stigma and fantasies. And I, th- I think that after listening to his lyrics for 20-some years, listening to what Mary says about the need for people to have fulfilled sexual ideas that are brought to life for them, uh, it only makes the world a better place.
1: Yeah, and I never considered that there is this altruistic, more charitable uh, side of sex work, which is really what she does and helping these people with disabilities. So that's also fascinating to hear. And um, from that to hot takes, I've got a couple door slammers to start us off today. Number one, Tim, do you enjoy strip clubs?
0: I don't enjoy strip clubs. And the reason why has nothing to do with the perception of, of sex work or sex at all. I, I should preface this by saying that every time I have been to a strip club, it has been at a bachelor party where the bachelor wanted to do that. I, I feel like every time I've been to a strip club, which has been maybe three times ever, it's always in a situation where I don't feel that my values are represented because I am part of the problem by being, A drunk guy at a bachelor party, or something like that. I I feel like when I'm at a strip club, I always feel like I am the problem.
1: Your perception of it is coming from the group that you're a part of,
0: right? What I feel like is that I'm there. We're there from more of a debaucherous perspective, which which I don't like.
1: Well, speaking of groups, because bachelor parties are a huge part of the strip club perception. What what are some let, let's 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 break down the kinds of people that you find at a strip club because it's not just bachelor party, uh, drunk dudes. I'd say the most common you've got the group of twenty one year old bros who are there for the first time, and they think they've discovered strip clubs, right? You then you have the guy that actually thinks that the women like him. Well, yes. So that, then you have uh, the loner guy. That's the loner guy who you'd probably find there on a Wednesday afternoon who all the girls know by name, sitting by himself with this half-dazed look on his face and a giant stack of pre-ironed $1 bills in front of him that he carefully like ironed at his kitchen table before he went out that day. So there's him. And then there's like the couple, like the whether they're dating or, just, or a married couple, who you can tell are doing this to kind of spice up their night out, like their date nights. And they're sitting there awkwardly quiet, looking like they're watching a movie, not quite knowing how to act or behave. The guy doesn't want to look too into it. And the girl is, like uncomfortable. And you know the girl is going to say later on that night, I'm never, ever doing this again. And then there, there's also there's the businessman that's trying to impress
0: uh, in the strip club. There's there's always the patriarchal male figure that has brought colleagues younger friends uh, or or people in town visiting there because they feel that this is the best way that they can present themselves in the most authoritative light.
1: Yeah, you got him. And then I think lastly, unfortunately, <laughs> you've got your old high school teachers <laughs> who, who you try desperately to avoid eye contact with. There's always, I think, the fear that you're going to see somebody you
0: know at the strip club, right? Which
1: well, yeah, but then if you see if you know them, then they're there too. So you can't, right? You know, you can't be ashamed because they're there too. And then you see Tim in his Burton hat making an absolute ass of himself at a bachelor party. And that's him. Yeah. But as far as like strip clubs go, like I don't know. I get really annoyed when people say things like. Like, oh, those poor girls, it's so sad. Like, what if that was your daughter? And we kind of touched on this in the interview with uh, with Mary. From what I understand, a lot of women that work at strip clubs genuinely enjoy dancing. They enjoy entertaining. Being up there makes them feel empowered. Of course, I'm not speaking for all strip club dancers, but I think they very much view their job as entertainment. And of course, the industry has its issues. Uh, we don't want to minimize that in any way. But who are we to sit here and tell these women they're being oppressed or taken advantage of or shouldn't be doing what they're doing? Casting judgment on strippers, strip clubs, prostitutes, escorts, whatever it is, to me, has always been very performative and even disingenuous. All right. Well, enough about that. We'll move on to the next question. Uh, Next one for you today, Tim, is if you drive through a state or just pass through in any way, can you say that you've been there?
0: No. No. That's like, that's like saying that you've been to a country if you've only been to the airport in the capital city. Like When, when I'm country counting, as lame of a term as that is, and I, I really generally dislike travelers who constantly brag about how many countries they've been to, but I, I think that the, the idea of like saying like, oh yeah, so I went to Iowa when you just drove through it on the highway and maybe you stopped for lunch, that's not, you're not experiencing Iowa's culture in any way there. You know, like, or if if you land in the airport in Germany, in you know, in Berlin, but you don't actually go into the city, you're just there on a layover. You haven't been to Berlin, you
1: know. I 100% agree with you. This question was inspired by the cross country trip I just took from Colorado to Massachusetts, and it got me thinking. I passed through Nebraska, Ohio, all the I states like Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, and if someone asked me if I'd been to Indiana. The answer would technically be yes, but did I have an experience in Indiana? Do I actually know anything about Indiana? Absolutely not. Is there anything to know about Indiana? But saying you've been there implies that you're at least somewhat knowledgeable about the place, when in fact, that couldn't be less true. Correct. And it's funny,
0: actually, tying into today's episode very well, I took a train from Interlaken, Switzerland, to Amsterdam, And we spent the, it was a long train. It took, you know, probably 12 hours or more. And the vast majority of that time was in Germany. And while we were en route, we stopped at the train station in Dusseldorf, in which we disembarked, walked around the station, had some food, whatever, and then got back on the train and kept going. I will not say I've been to Germany, despite the fact that I spent more than half of a day in Germany, because I didn't actually do anything
1: in Germany. It goes back to not being an asshole, right? Because I hate when people say, oh, yeah, I've been to Amsterdam. And then you ask them about it. and It turns out they just had a layover in the Amsterdam airport. I think it's a bit misleading, but I don't have a solution because technically, geographically, they have been there. You have been to Germany, Tim. Maybe the solution is coming up with criteria, right? So like if you stayed overnight at a hotel, you can say you've been there or if you ate at a restaurant there you can say you've been there. I don't know. Where's the where's the line? I would think staying overnight
0: in a hotel is is probably counts, you know. It, okay. The exception being if you're just at an airport hotel and all you did was Uber to the hotel and then Uber back to the airport, I don't know that that really
1: counts. Okay.
0: Right? Yeah. But if you've been into the city center and you stayed in a hotel for one night and had dinner somewhere and walked around, sure, I would say that counts. Like, for example, a good example of that would be The Iceland stopover that so many people, including myself, have done, where you fly through Reykjavik on your way to mainland Europe, and you spend one to three days in Reykjavik, you know, we spent one night there, probably about 24 hours in total, but I say I have been to Reykjavik and Iceland because we, you know, went to the city, we went to the Blue Lagoon, we had a few meals, stayed in a hostel, and then went back to the airport.
1: Right. I think if you can have an experience, however small, you know, but an experience that even has just the whiff of a cultural angle, then you can say you've been to the place. I think driving through, to to me, even driving through Indiana, staying at a Holiday Inn, and then continuing the next day, I still feel weird saying I've been to Indiana. I don't know anything about Indiana. I didn't talk to anyone from Indiana. I didn't eat Indiana food. I didn't do it. If I was from Indiana and I heard me say that, I'd be like, fuck you, dude. You've been to Indiana. Yeah,
0: I, I don't know. But uh, my my first question for you, Evan, is kind of along those lines. And we, we've talked about it a little bit uh, in, in the last episode, in fact. But to you, and I know what you're going to say to this, but I want to hear you explain exactly why. Is sitting by the pool all day at a hotel a waste of time?
1: Uh, this is very similar to my question, actually. <laughs> Can you say you've been to a place if you just sit by the pool in the resort the entire time? Uh, waste of time, no, because I think, I think the whole point of a vacation is enjoyment. It's to, it has to have fun, It's to enjoy yourself, to relax, to decompress. If sitting by the pool accomplishes those things for you, then of course it's not a waste of time. Now, does sitting by the pool constitute a cultural experience? Just because you're in Mexico and you go to Cancun and you sit at the resort pool for four days straight, could I say that I've experienced Mexico? I would probably be hesitant to say that, but would I say I had a great time? that's that's entirely possible
0: i think where it becomes you know a quote-unquote waste of time if you want to try to judge it is is exactly what you just said where you go to an all-inclusive resort and you just sit there for a week and then you go home and maybe maybe you're trying to decompress and that was the entire point of your vacation but yeah it's really hard to say that you've been to mexico if all you did was fly to the cancun airport take a hotel charter bus to your all inclusive resort, and then take that hotel charter bus back to the airport and fly back to America. That's, that's not international travel.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I feel the same way. Speaking of pools though, there is really something alluring about just being in a pool, even if it's, I mean, all pools are the same. If you think about it, you know, the pool in your backyard, the pool in Mexico, the pool in Bali, it's all the same. It's all pools. It's all just water. You're just putting your body in water. But like when I was doing this trip from you know Colorado, I, it would be like an hour out. We'd be an hour away from the hotel and I'd be like, oh, cool. An hour until I get to check in and use the pool. What's so special with the holiday and pool? Absolutely nothing. It's the most basic, non picturesque, lukewarm pool that you could ever imagine. There's nothing fun about it, but just being there in having arrived after a journey and being just by yourself, even in a pool in a, in a cookie cutter, uh, hotel chain there's just something really enticing about that. And I don't, I can't put words to it. I don't know why.
0: Well, it's funny. Cause this, this perfectly leads into my second question today, which, which is are cheeky hotel amenities bullshit. And by cheeky, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of a specific holiday Inn express. I believe experience I had as a kid when we were on a road trip where there was like a mini little small mini golf course in the hotel. And of course there's a pool and all this other stuff, but like, does stuff like that actually detract from the travel experiences because it keeps you in the hotel instead of out doing stuff? Or do you look for, you know, weird amenities when you're booking lodging?
1: Oh, well, first of all, I didn't know this was a British podcast, Tim. Your, your British vernacular, cheeky. But I don't think it's bullshit. No, I mean, I don't think I would. If a hotel has it that I was going to be staying at anyway, then cool. Like I would love if my Holiday Inn Express had a mini golf course. That's, that's welcome 100% of the time but would i go out of my way to pay more money for a hotel that had a mini golf course in a destination that i my goal was to explore the destination no i would not how about if you if you were traveling with kids whose kids my kids or your kids or a stranger's kids
0: any any kids
1: kids <laughs> just, that you're going to have just, to entertain just all just kids okay well, of course. I mean, that's even more so. Yeah, like mini golf. I love mini golf. Kids love mini golf. A lot. Of th- most things that that kids enjoy, I enjoy. Um, it's 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 also I could see I could see a family paying a little bit extra, like not an exorbitant amount, but like a little bit extra to stay at a chain hotel with cheesy amenities like that. Whether it's an arcade or mini golf course, just because it's something to do, it's something to keep kids occupied. You know, if I if my parents ever brought me to a holiday with a mini golf course, I think that's a uh, a memory i would have forever i really don't think i'd forget that
0: yeah well clearly it worked for me because i still remember it some 30 years later so all right well that'll uh that'll wrap us up for hot takes today and uh we will get into it with mary we'll see you on the other side
1: mary welcome to the show it is great to have you uh first off why don't you describe for us what a normal work day looks like for you? Or maybe there are no normal work days, um, but just take us through kind of a day in your life.
2: Well, my, my work day usually doesn't start very early. It's usually work in the afternoon or in the evening. And uh, so my, my normal routine is I have an appointment in the afternoon. So in the morning I shower and do my makeup and, out the clothes and, and I'm going to wear because some clients have preferences. And then um, I, I visit my clients where they live, sometimes in a hotel if they prefer that. And my clients are mostly people with disabilities, mentally or physically, or disabi- or sometimes they don't have disabilities and um the minimum time i spend with my clients is one hour it depends a bit on their budget because when you you can imagine when you've been living in a mental hospital for 20 years you're not that much of a millionaire so um it depends on the budget but if they're willing to pay that they can spend as much time as they want And it's a minimum of one hour and that's what they call all in. So it's also my, I bring my own materials that I need to use, you know, the condoms, the lubricants and toys and things. Um, And it includes my travel costs and everything. Yeah. And
1: how did you get into working with people with disabilities? Because you were uh, a nurse, I believe, before doing this, right?
2: That's right. Yes, that's right. And, um, I've been a nurse for many years and during my work, I noticed that people may have some kind of handicap or disability. Um, but I need intimacy and, and sex just like anyone else. And, um, for people, if you live in an, in in an institution, it can be very difficult to have a, a relationship. And as a nurse, you really can't do anything for those guys. It's it's almost always men. Uh, but I felt sorry for them. And when I read about agencies that mediate between clients and sex assistants, as they call it, I thought, "Wow, that's that's the job for me. I know I can do that, and uh, I think I like it. And um, and I did." <laughs> I thought i would just going to try it, and if I don't like it, I'll just stop again. But I've been doing it for, I don't know, some seven, eight years now.
1: And it's fulfilling in the sense that you, you're you able to provide a level of intimacy to these people who are, whether they have physical or mental disabilities, they're not able to uh, achieve that kind of uh, intimacy or get a relationship in the traditional sense.
2: Yeah. And many of my clients uh, are regulars, almost all of them. And um uh, on average, I see them once a month.
0: I'm I'm curious, as someone who grew up in Amsterdam and uh, was exposed to the concept of sex work earlier in life, uh, I, I imagine what were you, what was your view on on sex work and on the workers um, after you know visiting the red light district as a child, perhaps, or hearing about it, uh, and and based on the fact that there's such a tradition of that in Amsterdam.
2: I was born and raised in Amsterdam. And uh, so you always knew about the red light district. And when you go to town, you go through the red light districts and you see the ladies in the windows. And even as a small child, um, you get used to it. And um, at a certain time, you know, we asked our mum, what, what are they doing? Why are they? And she said, oh, uh, well, for gentlemen who don't have a girlfriend and, um, Sometimes they do want to kiss and cuddle with a girl and they can choose one of the girls they like, give her some money and then they can kiss and cuddle with them. And we thought, oh, well, that's a funny profession and that's it. You know, as a child, you're not subject to moral uh, judgment or something like that. Just, so we've always knew me and my brother and sisters, that was just a profession that you could um that you could do only when i started to work at at pic and spoke to tourists and people that came to visit our city i realized um, that to some people it's not as normal as it appeared to me
1: (laughs) right and it is normal until you you know come into contact with people who are from a culture where uh, sex is stigmatized yeah. So as a child like you said you grew up surrounded by it and it was it was normal. It's interesting because we had a um a dating coach on the show a few months ago who was talking about the differences in how different cultures perceive sex like uh western cultures like the US especially is kind of puritanical and repressed and shy about expressing sexual desires and sexual needs. So it's almost like what you're doing is a more it's it's just leaning into that that openness of needing intimacy whereas tourists from the u.s might go there and be like wow like you can just like have it's just right out in the open there in these windows and you know you just call an escort and it's fine and people actually do this as a profession just like they would work in a you know work as a nurse
2: yes and the, the sex workers are in the windows and it's opposite the church and next to a child's daycare center and nobody cares and 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 it's also a residential area and that's what makes it sort of special
1: uh, yeah people would lose their minds if that was the case in a neighborhood in, in the United States
2: yes and that's so funny because what sometimes people say isn't it dangerous and are, is is there a lot of uh, dangerous for the girls and so and as I like to explain that in the Netherlands sex work is legal but carrying guns is not
1: there you go Let's, let's let's uh let's take let that be the one takeaway here that we can uh, that we can all learn from but let let's uh dispel some misconceptions here so there's a common belief i think that amsterdam's red light district girls and other sex workers are largely forced to do what they do that they're being uh, pimped out somehow mistreated exploited and while i'm sure that there's a lot of nuance here is that true to a large extent in amsterdam what's the biggest misconception about sex
2: work the biggest misconception indeed is that all the girls are being forced and that it's a profession that it that it's a profession that nobody would choose to do out of their own free will and um it's just not true and there there is a problem of human trafficking does exist sure uh, but Sure, but also in many other uh, businesses like uh, construction work, uh, agriculture. Only you never hear about that. Um, and the problem with um, sex work is that there is a big morality influence. That's a that that's a big problem. And um, human trafficking does exist. We always acknowledge that, but the reality would be that between eighty and nineteen percent of the women because it's always about the women are doing it out of their own free will because they like it or because you can make good money. Another thing is that because of, in the red light district, many of the girls come from other countries, mainly Eastern Europe, they must be trafficked. But the, th- the reality is that they choose to come to work in Amsterdam and, or in the Netherlands is because it is legal. You can't be arrested for doing sex work. And if you have trouble with a client, you can call the police and the police will help you instead of arresting you and raping you, which is very common in countries where it's illegal.
1: Wow. Yeah. I think there's this idea that girls couldn't possibly enjoy sex work of their own free will, that it's not something that they could ever choose voluntarily to do and get enjoyment out of.
2: It, it, it's not true and um if you think that's the, the thing you, you you nobody would choose that and you judge the sex workers by your own um ideas that's where you're being wrong i guess i guess that's where you make the mistakes
1: right they're judging people by their own cultural from their own cultural standpoint
2: yeah and and it, th- there's also the thing that for example um my oldest client is 95. Wow. And um, if I were to meet him on the street, I would never think, oh, wow, that's, you know, you 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 should not compare it to having a relationship and having sex with your partner, your boyfriend or girlfriend. Why would I have to go, go to bed with a 95-year-old? It's not because I'm in love or attracted to them, but that's not what it is about. Right. I'm just... Um, selling a service and my 95 year old he's he's very sweet and cute and my reward is that i'm able to give him a nice time apart from the money
1: yeah that, that that's interesting so how do you separate relationships and uh in your personal life from your work because i always always wondered this about people who are working the, the sex industry it, how, how do you kind of compartmentalize your own personal relationships and finding a partner that's okay with your profession, with continuing to, to work in your line of work.
2: Well, when I'm at work, I am Mary, but Mary is not my real name. So that's one thing. Uh, Mary is the sex worker. You know what I mean? Sort of like a persona. Okay. And, uh, I have my, my Mary makeup and clothes and, uh, perfume even. So when I'm working, I'm Mary.
0: I'm curious how often you come across foreign stigmas related to sex work in, in, your, in your work and, and even just in observing tourists in Amsterdam, obviously it's a, a, a major tourist destination. Uh, how frequently does the stigma of other cultures view on sex work penetrate the, the culture of Amsterdam and your work directly?
2: Well, it's not only uh, other cultures, it's it's the way people view it and that can be Dutch people as well. Even here in Holland is the idea that many of the girls are trafficked because nobody would uh, choose that for their work. Uh, we also in the Netherlands have uh, a very strict Protestant area. And if you were raised in that sort of ideas, that sex workers are uh, bad women and you should not get involved with them and they will go to hell. Uh, if that's your point of view, yeah, I can understand. That's uh, difficult.
1: Is that stigma getting better or worse? Do you think over time? So the last like five, ten years, do you think that Amsterdam, the community, and locals are getting more accepting of sex workers or less accepting?
2: In Amsterdam, it's it's not the the locals of Amsterdam. It's people from out of out of the city. Mm. Um, it's not really about accept, accepting uh, sex work. The problem that they have is the over tourism.
1: Ah, and the sex work brings the overtourism.
2: Yeah, that's what I think. The sex workers get to blame unjustly. Unjustly. The city did an uh, an inquiry a, c- a couple of years ago before before the COVID. So when all the tourists were still there, and they asked, I think about. Um, 1,100 people between the ages of 18 and 35. Uh, Would you still visit this area if there were no red lights, no no sex workers' windows, and only I think four or five percent said no, we wouldn't come if the sex workers weren't there. So that means 95 percent would come nevertheless. And it it's an entertainment area. There's lots of um, cafes and uh, restaurants. And that's what attracts the people.
0: What then was behind the motivation to move the red light district out? Because the, the way the news perceived that was that it was in order to take it away from the tourism so that it would no longer be a face in the tourism industry.
2: Yeah, and that's what they said um, uh, to the um, city. They said, well, these 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 women uh need to be uh protected because they are in the window and they are insulted by drunk tourists calling them names and these things happen of course but it's part of the job you know that's going to happen and they can manage very adequately with those with those guys i can tell you but the city says these women are vulnerable are being put behind windows which is not the case and we need to help them and we need to protect them so the city is saying it's better for the women, only they didn't ask the women. The women don't want to leave. The women love those areas because it's, it's very compact. It's only one square kilometer. It's always busy and that means you're safe. Even if you leave your shift at uh, 4 or 5 a.m. with you know a pack of cash, you're safe. There's always people around. We know all we all know each other and the the window renting companies. It's safe. There's a lot of cameras, police cameras. So we don't want to leave. the The girls don't want to leave,
1: so the city government is using the women of the red light district as almost a scapegoat to kind of put into effect the their vision for what they think the city should look like,
2: yeah, that's 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 what's out. They are, um, in our point of view, that's what they are trying to do.
0: There's a, there's a direct contrast there between what happens in places like the United States where there are still bachelor parties, where they still get very drunk, and they instead hire girls to come to the house, where the girls are much more vulnerable and probably not nearly as safe as they are in a place like Amsterdam. Uh, and it's because of the, the cultural stigma that wouldn't allow this to take place out in the open. Uh, so you can you can see again to further your previous point how much safer the women are by being in a place where it is controlled and regulated and a part of the culture rather than being forced underground where the alcohol is going to be there no matter what
2: no matter what but, but what you say is very true the work the the, the work in the windows is the safest. And most independent way to work because you get to select your clients and if you don't like them, you will not let them in. Or if you think this this person is giving me the creeps or he, he looks disheveled, you don't let them in. And again, also even if you are hired to go to someone's house, when something happens, again you can call the police. Well while in your country where sex work is illegal, you don't have any rights.
1: Right, you're afraid to call the police because then you you could get arrested yourself. Exactly. And do you have any red flags that you look for look for when accepting customers? Is there anything that would make you say, kind of like you just said earlier, like, oh no, like I'm this 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 guy looks a little sketchy, uh, doesn't look respectful, isn't acting the way that I would want him to act. Like, what is there anything you look for that would say make you say no?
2: Well, in in the the type of work I do, that's not really. Um happening because you
1: work with people with disabilities who are in hospitals and it's a different kind of people are not just strolling into your happening. your window and okay
2: yeah and the the agency i work for always does what they call intake with with the clients because right. you have to know what type of disability do they have what are they wish so that to me it doesn't happen but if i were to work in the windows um like i said people who are looking dirty who are being very disrespectful um uh offering ten ten euros
1: <laughs> that's insulting ridiculous
2: you no know? that's insulting i have I also have a colleague who said for ten euros I'll break your nose
1: <laughs>
2: I, yeah and um and but also it's a sort of intuition you know i I don't know why, but the, the way the, he's 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 looking at me he gives me the shivers no, thank you well,
1: so it, walk me through because uh, I've always been curious about this, uh, it, a customer who wants to, I know you don't work in the red light district in the windows, but um, that's the, kind of what everyone is familiar with when it comes to Amsterdam sex work. So walk us through what the process is like for a customer trying to enter uh, one of these, these windows, one of these uh, little apartments, and uh, negotiate with the woman inside.
2: Well, first you need to know that the window workers are all independent entrepreneurs. They pay the rent and then it's their shop. You have to negotiate with the girl. What does she offer and how much does she charge? Because that's different. So then it's what does the client want? Does she want sex? Does she want a blowjob? That's 50 euros.
1: Does every girl offer, sorry to interrupt, but does does every girl offer uh, the same services or are their services kind of listed in the window somewhere so that the guy knows exactly what he can get
2: well that it's not like it's exactly listed but some girls uh, will have um high black boots in the window and a pair of handcuffs and then you know you can go there for sm you know
1: okay uh, gotcha
2: like that things and if you just and if you want something special you you just have to ask
1: and then if she's down to do it she'll say yes if not then she'll say no
2: if she exactly, and then maybe she says, "Well, I'm not go, I, I don't want to do that." But maybe the girl next door will. I I have had when I was hosting at PIC, a couple came in, a young couple, and said, "Did I know of a sex worker who would have them both for a threesome?" And uh, well, that's, well, I can't I can't give you a name or address, but go ahead and ask them, you know, and maybe they're okay with it and they say, okay, that's 150 euros for half an hour or 200 or you never know. And if you want to stay longer, you have to pay another hundred euros. It's every girl has her, their own price. Every window worker has her own uh, specialty and the things that she, liked, she that she's willing to do and not willing to do and how much she charged them. So um, almost everything is for sale, but you have to go find the right person who wants to sell it
1: and is it hard to maintain a sense of uh enthusiasm say you're a 95 year old client right so you you're going out to meet him is it hard to like kind of fake enthusiasm for the experience when you're really not attracted to the person and you're not really invested in him in the way that he might be invested in you
2: It's work. And I've I've heard someone, uh, This he, it was a male guide and he was telling tourists about his experience with a sex worker. And she's in the windows and smiling. Hey, honey, would you come in have a good time? So, And he thinks she wants me. This woman is hot for me. And he goes in and pays money. And then um, after 50 minutes, she said, time's up.
0: I like how you break it down, though, because I, I think a part of, the, part of the stigma on the American side and probably a lot of international tourists is they come here and even if they do plan to be a patron, they don't know how it works. So even being able to listen to the way you've just explained it, I think could shatter a lot of boundaries uh, around how people perceive sex workers, uh, in particular in a place like Amsterdam where it's legal. But I'm also curious to, to flip it around. In what you do, are there similar services for, for women who are disabled?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's it's open to everyone. But I must say, in all the time that I've been doing this work, I have had one female client.
1: Are there men that work in the same field as you do that will serve women clients? Yeah. There you go, Tim. If you're ever looking for a career pivot.
2: Yeah, but, but the agency usually says if you're a man and you only want to work with female clients... Uh, it's best to have another job on the side because you will not be able to earn your living right. with that.
1: What, one last question on, on this kind of subject before we move on. Uh, I think uh, health and safety is a big subject that comes up when you talk about uh, prostitution and sex work. What are the health uh, protocols that go into place for escorts, uh, sex workers in Amsterdam? Are they tested? Are they screened so that clients know that they're safe because the sex worker has no idea if a client is is safe to be with or not
2: that's why sex workers always um work safe that means they use condoms you bring your own materials your own condoms and you put it on yourself so that you know that it's done the right way and there's also in amsterdam but other cities as well the municipal health care And in Amsterdam, they have a special location for sex workers where you can go to for your STD check, free of charge and anonymous. And uh, if you need treatment, it's also free of charge. It's not mandatory to get your STD check four times a year, but because that would be patronizing. But because it's free of charge and people are very open to them because they're specialized in doing STD checks, Um, Everyone goes there. And um, the STD, uh, the uh, prevalence of of STDs among female sex workers is lower than the average.
1: I was going to say, because you you hear about like porn stars who that's part of their job. They have to get STD checks like once a week. And they're probably so much safer than the majority of the population.
2: Yeah, in porn stars, um, uh, a, lot, lot, uh, a lot of porn is still made without uh condoms, so then you need to be extra sure. Um, but the, the other sex work where you have with clients is usually uh, always safe sex, always with a condom because you don't know, especially in the window, where your client has been, what he has been doing. So, what
1: about? Porn in Amsterdam, because I, given it's the culture is so open to sex work, is there a big porn industry in Amsterdam or in the Netherlands in general?
2: I don't think it's it's particularly uh, bigger or not as big as no different ever, than anywhere else. I, I don't know, but in Amsterdam we do have the world's first and only five dimensional porn cinema.
1: Five dimensions porn? What's five dimensional?
2: well you know the 3d yeah so you get the glasses on so it's all yeah ooh, it's all and um the 5d is um chairs are moving and everything that happens on the screen comes to you well i I, I still
1: don't, don't exactly know what that means but I am very curious now <laughs>
2: I I don't want to to you know to tell everything to tell all the to, you know to take away the the surprise but you should come. You should come over and experience it.
1: Hey, I'll tell you what my first stop is going to be if I go to Amsterdam.
0: <laughs> what do you perceive, whether it's you know from the government or from from clients or just culture in general? What do you perceive as the biggest threat to your industry uh, in in Amsterdam and and at large?
2: Um, politicians and other organizations. I don't like to say it, but it is a fact that most of them are religiously based, um, made it their mission to fight human trafficking, which is a good thing. Nobody wants human trafficking. But to do so, one of the Christian parties has uh, made a law proposal that says all sex workers should be registered in a sort of national database with your name, your real name, your phone number, and your social security number. That's against the law of privacy.
1: You know how you handle this, though? You know, how, you know how you solve this issue? You run like a special, like a sale in the red light district for only for members of the this religious organization. And it's like 75% off just for members of this religious organization. So they can try it for themselves. They can, You make them customers, and then they'll realize how much they love it, and they'll still leave you guys alone.
2: Oh, but one of my colleagues says, the Christians are my best customers. Of course, yeah, there you go. Yeah. But for some reason, uh, officially they say uh, sex work is not normal. But who decides what's normal? And I can understand if you say, I don't think it's normal. Okay, that's your opinion. But you should not try to push your opinion onto other people and telling me that my work is not normal.
1: They say it's not normal on like two o'clock on a Wednesday, but at midnight on a Saturday that same person is due is paying 500 bucks for an S&M experience in the red light district quite possible <laughs> well you you see it in America all the time the politicians
0: um, you know m- many of them trying to enact the strictest laws it's the same thing with the catholic church here they're the ones that are you know found guilty 20 years later so
2: yeah so I'm not too keen on, re- on religion for some reason I don't know why They say it's to help people and fight human trafficking. The reality is to make it as difficult as possible for sex workers to do their job.
1: Right. And they make no distinction between sex workers who work in the windows and those who do what you do, uh, serving people with disabilities.
2: Oh, no. The thing, um, there was an an interview on a national radio some time ago about um, after a group had proposed... Uh, that clients should be criminalized of course it was rejected but um, there was a radio discussion later that day between a member of a christian party and a member of the liberal party and our so-called minister of um uh handicapped people and he brought up the subject he said but what are you going to do with people with special needs people like me because we are sort of if we want intimacy or sex, we are sort of dependent on professionals.
1: Yeah, no, I don't think a lot of people realize that there's something like that.
2: They never thought about it. they never it never crossed their minds that there was something like that
1: and how many how many active kind of regular clients do you have
2: well it was, well well the, there are people that I see every three weeks, and there are people that I see every two months. depends on their budget uh, and so and I think maybe well. Twenty, thirty—I'm not sure—but they're all regulars. But I don't see them. Some, some people I see only four times a year.
1: The last real question we have, I think, before we go on to our listener questions, is COVID. I mean, must have had a huge impact on your industry and its customers. I mean, how how did that affect you, and how did COVID and the shutdown affect the just the sex worker industry as a whole?
2: Well like many other professions sex workers were allowed to work uh, the government did some had some support for uh, independent entrepreneurs and like i said the women the the window workers and most escorts are independent entrepreneurs so they could get some financial support even when you're a sex worker because it's legal but there's also a type of work the, the, the girls in the um, the clubs and the private houses who are not independent entrepreneurs, but they aren't also are not employees, you know, employed. And they had no support whatsoever. And for them, it was a really difficult time. And uh, for the clients, it was also a very difficult time. There were so many, when are the windows going to reopen? When are the sex workers able to work again? You know, people coming to us but we didn't know the answer either
1: yeah it's tough because when the whole point of this industry especially from your standpoint is intimacy and providing it to people that can't get it in their personal lives the one thing that was pretty much outlawed globally during covid for a year was intimacy and personal connection and personal relationships so that's a that's a brutal blow for people who are in your client's position that that really rely on this
2: yeah we have tried uh, there's a union of window workers who had uh, very early on designed a protocol uh hygiene is always a very important point in sex work and um so we even doubled that up and um you could wear a face mask you should be able to avoid certain positions in sex you know but if you think about it uh, there's a lot of sex work that could still be possible
1: well yeah there's that stigma coming again into play you know there's rationally i mean you know they, if they could have if they wanted to there is a creative solution to, to to getting you guys back to work but i don't think there is the the willingness or willpower to
2: yeah of course to do it of course and we we are not just you know silly women we can use our minds as well and we can work with protocol and we know when you have like in my my clients are vulnerable because of their uh, health conditions so you need to be extra careful i still am even with we now that we're allowed to work again i'm still extremely careful um i would hate the idea that someone would get covid because of me
1: yeah of course We'll move on to our uh, listener question. So we source uh, a bunch of travel-related questions from listeners and then pick the best one um, for each guest. And then we ask our guests' opinion um, and and get their answer. So today we have one from James L., who lives in uh, Santa Monica. He says, what is your advice for a traveler looking to sample the sex culture of another country? Uh, Strip club, hire an escort, go to the red light district. Uh, If someone only has like a few nights in a place and wants a memorable experience, what should they do?
2: I can only say some uh, things about Amsterdam because that's the place I know the best thing about. Uh, Of course, it depends on whether it's sex work is legal or not. That's a big difference. Uh, But should you go to Amsterdam, um, I would advise you to visit one of the theaters of Casa Rosso. It's a theater, there's a stage, and on stage you have people having sex. Uh, then I should visit a window worker and um, visit, uh, uh, well, <laughs> the banana bar.
1: What's, what's the banana bar?
2: It's, it's not, the, the girls, not, you don't have sex with the girls. Um, so it's not really sex work, but they do all kinds of shows and things involving bananas okay and the rest you should find out for yourself
1: so the uh so the theater and the banana bar got it
2: yeah and um i would also try to hire an escort and then you have to go online but uh and there's a variety of escorts you have very expensive ones and less expensive that depends on the looks well whatever so and because then you have get to spend more time the windows is very short, 15 minutes at most. Uh, for an, an escort, you can hire for an hour or two hours or an evening. Uh, if you go to uh, one of the private houses, that's also a nice experience. You you pay entrance and then there's a bar. You can have a drink. There are several girls. And if you say, oh, I like that girl. I want to have a drink with her, have a chat with her and if you like her you can go upstairs uh, and to one of the rooms
1: there's a lot of options
2: there's a lot of options
1: well this has been a fascinating conversation thank you so much for coming on
2: thank you (laughs) We,
1: we usually at this point would ask where people can find you if they want to if they want to find our guests on social media or contact their business. In your case, I don't know if that uh if that quite works, but if people do want to find you or get in touch with you, is there a way for them to do that?
2: Uh they should send an email to the Prostitution Information Center.
1: And I we'll, we'll put that email in the uh in the show notes so people can people have it.
2: For all their questions about Amsterdam and the red light districts, just email the PIC. I work there. So if they visit Amsterdam, they might be able to meet me there.
1: Yeah. Visit Amsterdam, email the PIC, ask for, and ask for Mary. I'll <laughs> take good care of Amsterdam.
2: you. We miss you. We miss the Americans.
1: <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, soon enough, I think we'll be able to get back over there. So hopefully, but all right, Mary, take care. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Mary. Thank you. All right. That was an incredible conversation with mary probably one of my favorites we've done so far and now it's time to get into takeaways and there are no shortage of takeaways i'm sure we could spend hours on this section but don't worry guys we won't we'll keep it short the first one that comes to my mind is really the the charitable and altruistic nature of of prostitution that i think a lot of people don't consider including myself You think of it as this profession that involves kind of creeping up to some guy's door stealthily in the middle of the night and uh, doing something illegal. Um, And it's stigmatized on both ends, on the prostitute's end and on the, the client's end. But what Mary does is really a great service for people who need intimacy, who need connection and need this emotional support, but can't get it in their everyday lives because of physical disabilities or mental disabilities.
0: That's right. And I think this is the perfect example of uh, of the resulting stigma around something being entirely one sided, because, of course, the people that are, uh, you know, maybe coming from a more conservative angle or whatever their reasoning for not supporting sex work broadly are going to not include this in their argument, even if they're aware of it. And many of them probably aren't even aware that there actually is very positive uh, things happening in the sex work industry in Amsterdam and elsewhere because you know, you, you hear sex work in America, you, you hear about prostitution in America, and it's always this this dark alley context, but there's never any mention of anything positive that could possibly even come from it.
1: Yeah, it's easy to cast prostitution as amoral, but I mean tell that to the guy who's ninety years old in a wheelchair who is a widower and is lonely. And this is his avenue for for physical intimacy this is his avenue for kind of reconnecting to 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 the world and feeling alive again and i think that there's something really powerful in that
0: i I think that you know this this stigma can be broken down through through casting stories like mary's more into the open yeah for sure um kind of on that note i i think as far as removing stigma my my next takeaway is that not only is Sex work beneficial to the paying client. It can be beneficial to the provider, and it can also be beneficial to the economy at whole. And I think what Mary does is a prime example of that, where it's it's organized, it's regulated. Uh, she's able to make a good living. She's able to provide a valued service to clients who need that and are willing to pay good money for it. It's it's certainly not just some you know ten dollars. On the side of the road, under the highway overpass, whatever this, you know, to go back to the stigma thing, it, it completely shatters the the global perception of sex work.
1: Well, I think one of the most fascinating things she said was that there's a special center, a health center for uh, sex workers to go to get uh, tested for STDs, um, and that it, you know, it's with prostitution being legal, you don't really think about this, but. If they're having an issue with a client or if they're feeling in danger, they can call the police to take care of it and to take care of them without any fear that they're going to be arrested. So they're really able to to work safely and to work smart and, and, and healthy in a way that sex workers in the U.S. can't because cause it's illegal here. I think the U.S. I mean, really has a lot of soul searching to do when it comes to this and whose best interest is really at heart by keeping this illegal.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And I, I think that gets to the heart of a lot of what Mary was saying with her uh, arguments today.
1: For me, the third and last takeaway would be this constant push and pull and this tension between conservatism and progressivism. And you see it in the u s all the time, and especially now you see it in Amsterdam, as we just discussed, where you know prostitution has been legal and it's been a part of uh, the culture there for a long time, especially even as Mary's growing up. But you have these religious forces, these more conservative forces doing everything they can to sabotage it, to pretty much to make it less safe for them to work, to rip sex workers out of the lives of these people with disabilities who really need it. And it just seems like uh, all too frequently, in whether it's sex work or, or other aspects of uh, – you, you can look at any political issue and probably say the same thing in the U.S., that there's this tension between – Progress and a reactionary mindset.
0: Yeah, and it's it's frustrating to hear, you know, her perception of the way that her industry is attacked and how representative it is of the struggle against progress around the world. I I think that there are a few things more dangerous than an unwillingness to an ex- to accept inevitable future or an unwillingness to accept documented ways that things are, and instead relying on ways of thinking that have been proven wrong over time. And it's it's it, it sucks to see how Mary's industry is, is dealing with that. And to be honest, to punch holes in the hypocrisy of those that are coming after her and after, you know, that are creating that stigma in the U.S., one need only watch the movie Spotlight.
1: And we talk about closed mindedness a lot on the show, especially with regard to travel and imposing your own expectations and your own uh, how you would travel on other people. I think the same goes is true here, Uh, you know, imposing your own morality on other people, your own concept of decency, of ethics. And what right do we have to presume to know what is right or ethical or moral uh, to do in in Amsterdam or in the red light district? I think that the judgment that comes from that is incredibly dangerous, just as judgment that comes from anything, telling people how to travel, telling people what to eat, telling people what to wear, uh, making them feel bad for not doing the things that you would do. Or subscribing to to your personal uh, ethos is also dangerous. So that that's that's one of the biggest things that I think I've taken away, and one of the biggest themes that you really see in in travel and in life in general.
0: Yeah, I agree a hundred percent, and I think it really plays out to what have I've always felt is kind of the underlying theme of a no blackout dates in general is that travel really does intersect every aspect of daily life. And it shows so much in this one because travel has the ability to break down barriers, uh, and 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 there's nothing more dangerous than people who sit in their backyard and try to regulate other people's backyards.
1: And that's why I don't have a backyard, Tim. At least for the moment. You know, I don't have one either. So we'll, we'll leave it. In your backyard's full of. And your backyard's full of chickens.
0: Yeah, so. it's a front, and it's not even a backyard. It's a front yard. No blackout dates is a backyard-free podcast, and we're going to keep it that way. <laughs> No backyard dates. No backyard dates. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. I think that was a great way to close. But shoot us an email, noblackoutdatespod at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. Let us know what you think is the biggest stigma facing travel today. Also, head over to Apple. We'd love to hear what you think. Shoot us a review, five stars, please. And we will see you next week.